Greetings, my friend, and welcome to Beyond Curious, conversations with brave adventurers like yourself that are taking voyages into the unknown to satisfy their curiosity, fulfill their purpose, and bring their ideas to life. I'm Brandon Fong, and I am beyond excited to have you here. Whether you are a new friend or an old friend, I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Brian Kurtz. So it was basically a metamorphosis of taking content that was undervalued, underutilized, but valuable, that we then created a direct mail division, and that created a $45 million book division for Boardroom and one of the books we got was an Encyclopedia of Natural Healing. They had sold maybe 3,000 copies at $20. And after we got done with the book and created the whole package for it, that book, I think, sold 800,000 copies in direct mail. Man, oh man, this is a good one. I have respected and admired Brian for several years now, so it is an absolute honor to have him on the show. So let me tell you a little bit about Brian if you're not familiar with him, and then I'll tell you about three specific things I would love for you to look out in today's episode. But Brian has had two careers. The first spanned 34 years as a force behind Boardroom Inc., an iconic publisher and direct marketer. During that time, he was mentored by and worked with a who's who of marketing legends who he owes everything to. And more specifically, he has worked side by side with the most prolific copywriters who have ever lived. And then also just for some context, because we talk about him a lot inside of the episode, he worked side by side and was mentored by Marty Edelson, who is the founder of Boardroom and uh, just an incredible, incredible human being that he learned from. Back to his bio. In his second career, which he is five years into as the founder of Titans Marketing, is a direct marketing educational and coaching company where he has also continued working with the best of the best. Titans Marketing is known for two, soon to be three mastermind groups, an array of classic books and swipe files Brian has republished and created, and he is the author of two books himself. His most recent book is Over Deliver, Build a Business for a Lifetime, Playing the Long Game in Direct Response Marketing. It is his opus, but not a memoir, and I have to say it is so, so good. If you are somebody who takes making an impact on the world seriously, this is a book that you do not want to miss. And then also his first book, The Advertising Solution, profiles six legends of advertising and copywriting, including Gene Schwartz and Gary Halbert. As a business-to-consumer marketer at Boardroom, Brian was responsible for selling over a billion dollars, that is billion with a B, worth of products, $39 at a time <laughs> to millions of people. As a business-to-business -business marketer with Titans Marketing, he has sold over $5 million worth of products and services to thousands, enabling them to spread the gospel about direct marketing to millions. During both careers, he has been a serial direct marketer with a foundation in the eternal truths and fundamentals of direct response while being committed to over-delivering over almost four decades. Guys, there is so much you have to learn from Brian. He is a wealth of wisdom, and as his bio says, he has learned from the best of the best, and there's so much that we dive into in this episode, but as always, I would love, love for you to look out for three specific things. Number one, what transformational concept on creating impact you can learn from a five-time World Series champion? Such a good insight. We talk about that in the very beginning. Number two, why Brian went to Barnes & Noble with a hand truck and bought enough books to make his 1985 Toyota Camry's tailpipe almost drag on the ground and what that has to do about helping you learn the fundamentals of direct response marketing that will help you create a bigger impact on the world. And then also, the one metric that Brian Brian believes was responsible for helping Boardroom Inc. generate over $1 billion in product sales.
sales, and so much more. Guys, we talk about taking the long road, building transformational relationships. We also talk about building transformational relationships at scale by leveraging the foundational concepts from direct response marketing. Guys, copywriting and direct response is something that is so, so important. And it is a topic that I haven't covered that much on the show. So it was an absolute honor to bring someone like Brian on that has literally been a player in the game for the longest time and has curated the best and highest quality wisdom from the best people in the business. So without any further ado, please enjoy this incredible conversation with my new friend, Brian Kurtz. Mr. Brian Kurtz. Oh my gosh. So excited to have you here. Welcome to the show, my friend. Well, thank you, Brandon. And I, I, I actually like solicited you to be on your podcast, which is rare for me. Not that I'm, I'm like a big draw on podcasts, but you know, I, I just, the way that you approach, I mean, it's not just, you didn't just title your podcast beyond curious, you are beyond, beyond curious. Mm -hmm. And and to do that, you got to work at it. And the way you work at it, everybody told me you got to get on Brandon Fung's podcast because he will actually read your book. He will <laughs> actually do research on you. He will actually be a hundred percent prepared which I'm not saying no one's ever prepared to do a podcast, but it's it's not the norm all the mm. time. Let's put it that way. And so I was excited about it because you are, you know, a, you're already give, a giving person. You're a giver. You want to contribute to the world, and you are beyond curious. And that you prepare. You know, there was a book written by Mark Shapiro, who was a uh, who was the president of like the Cleveland Indians baseball team. Now the Cleveland Guardians. I don't know. I don't know how to be uh, retroactively politically correct, <laughs> but, but he, he he had a book called Dare to Prepare. And he like, you know, it's it really is. It's such a it's such an incredible way to run your life. And you're running your life that way. And so mm. I need to be on your podcast, basically. So, well, so I'm so grateful. I think maybe the rest of the podcast, I'll just have you talk about me for 60 minutes and I can just sit and listen to it. <laughs> but I love it. Thank you. So and I think just you starting that way just shows you know, you, you care so much too. So really grateful to dive into your philosophy, not only in direct marketing, but also your philosophies on business and life. And as I mentioned to you before, there's somebody that's in the back of your wall on the zoom screen. So for somebody who's listening to audio, you can't see it, but there's a baseball player with a number 42 on his back. And I wanted to start here because I think it is just such a great representation for the way that you show up and the way that you show up inside of Overdeliver and the other aspects of your life. And it really shows a little bit about your philosophy. So talk to us a little bit about Mariano Rivera and his significance and why you think it's so important. Well, and the fact that you, you know, that people don't know on the call that we came on to Zoom before you turn the recording on and I come on and then enter Sandman. Halika, <laughs> you, you were playing it on, on, on the audio and again, shows you that you've dared to prepare. And so Mariano Rivera, his, his name, his, his nickname was the Sandman. He came into every baseball game. He, I, I don't know how much I have to explain about baseball that you people on the call might not know about baseball, but let it be known that Mariano Rivera was not only one of the best pitchers of all time in baseball, he was actually the best closer of all time. And the distinction of a closer is interesting which is part of why I admire him so much, among many other reasons. But uh, being a closer in sales, you know, the closer, right? They have to come in and close the sale, make the money, get the sale. Closing in baseball is 
the guy, the pitcher, who gets the three final outs when the game is close. You have to be within three runs of, of the team. You need to get the last three outs of the game, and you get a save for that. Mariano Rivera has the most saves of anybody by a wide margin. He has some of the most amazing career statistics. But the amazing thing that Mariano Rivera had was that he had one pitch. And most pitchers in baseball have multiple pitches. They have a fastball, a curveball, maybe a knuckleball, maybe a slider. There's all these different pitches, but the way you hold your hand and throw the ball. Mariano had one pitch. It was called a cut fastball. He was he had a unique cut fastball. And basically the ball would come straight into the batter and the batter would swing. But before he swung, the ball would just drop down. And he had a knack for just getting people to swing and miss or to not get the good wood on the ball. And so how do you do it with one pitch? It's just it's 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 mind boggling. And and everybody marveled at Mariano Rivera throughout his career. And so he was always open to teaching that pitch to anybody who wanted to learn it. That's sort of the key. And it, 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 it basically encapsulates my philosophy of competition is coexistence. And I've started that. I started that, you know, my first day when I worked at boardroom, boardroom in 1981, I realized I learned it from my mentor, Marty Edelston. It's like, you know, there are no secrets. Now there are some proprietary secrets within business, but most things can be shared. I have lots of stories about companies that didn't share their secrets because they thought they were secrets. They weren't so secret. And the company that didn't share went bankrupt before the people that did share their, their secrets. And I put secrets in, in air quotes. So secrets aren't secrets. You know, secrets are just common sense. And so, you know, Marianne Rivera would share the pitch with everybody. And I always wondered why. And the, the story goes that he would share it with anybody because he knew that, no, I think he knew he had a big ego, but not, he never showed it. But I think he knew no one could pitch the pitch as well as he could. Mm -hmm. But he also thought, I'm sure, that if someone could get the pitch better than he could, that would then set a new bar for him to be even better. What an amazing way to live your life, right? And he never lived in, and, and the irony of, of that they played Enter Sandman, which is, you know, a it's, it's metal, it's metallic rock. And he was like a church going, very religious guy. He, 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 in, in, when he was interviewed, when he got into the Hall of Fame, and he, he was the first player. And it's amazing that this happened just when it was, I don't know, I don't know, five, six years ago. He got into the Hall of Fame. He was the first player to get in with a unanimous vote, which is outrageous that it was because so many players could have been unanimous before him. Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, you know, Ty Cobb. No one ever went unanimous. Some writer who was voting always thought, I'll be the one that won't vote, so it won't be unanimous. No one could not be unanimous for Mariana Rivera. And he was interviewed. I, I got this YouTube video of him with Metallica. And, and they were talking about their mutual respect for one another. And they asked Mariano, if you, if you had to pick a song to come into, would it be Enter Sandman by Metallica? He goes, no, I have to admit, it'll probably be a church hymn. <laughs> you know, just the opposite. <laughs> That's who he was, you know. And yet he loved Metallica. He loved the fact that he had this relationship with them. So it's all about creating relationships from the strangest places, from the most obscure situations. And Enter Sandman was the perfect song for him 
because he put batters to sleep. You yeah. know, <laughs> there's a song about, you know, the, the kid going to bed at night and hoping not to die while they're sleeping. A little, a little, a little bleak. But yeah, but the but I love the philosophy and and I know in your book over delivered you give credit to Gary Bensavanga for being the Mariana Rivera of, of of copywriting. But I honestly believe Brian that in many ways that you live out that credo because you know over delivers like your your magnum opus and you really did truly lay everything out there and you so freely give all that content away. So I mean, I I said to Brian before we hit the record button, anybody that wants to do anything big in the world needs to get a copy of over delivered because you're gonna have to understand the fundamentals that that Brian talks about in the book. So we'll see how much we can cover. But before we start diving into some of the content of Overdeliver, I, I want to continue a little bit more on the baseball theme. Because last night, I texted our mutual friend, Jeff Madoff. <laughs> and I told him, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm interviewing Brian tomorrow. And you know, I respect Jeff so much as an interviewer himself. I'm like, so what are some things that might be interesting of asking Brian about? And he said, you got to talk about umpiring, specifically, because he knows that you did you know, umpire Little League, and it's really important for you. But he specifically encouraged me to ask about if you could draw any parallels or have any metaphors between your um, your passion for umpiring and what you saw in your career for direct response marketing. So I was curious to see if you might be able to share a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great story too, because I, I, I've always umpired and I, how I became a baseball umpire. And those of you who don't know what an umpire is, it's the guy who no one comes to the game to see. And if, you, <laughs> and, and if you're seen, you're in trouble. Because you're calling balls and strikes in a baseball game, you're calling out and safe, and if you make a mistake, everybody's going to yell at you. So it's 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 a pressure situation in a way with a very little reward. I mean, you know. And so I was sitting with my friend Kevin Rogers, who's a great copywriter coach, and he runs Copy Chief. And he once said to me, and I will curse here because he cursed when he asked me. He said, Brian, I got to ask you a question. Why the fuck would anybody ever want to be a baseball umpire? For little had, kids too. For little kids too, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, got that's heated parents on both sides. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I said I had to think about it, and I came up with two reasons, core reason. One is what is sort of like whatever your passion is, right? And your passion should be something outside of what you do every day. Like you know, even if it's like even if it's yoga or meditation just something where you can focus on something else that keeps your entire focus. So, and and so that's one reason. And the thing about baseball umpiring is that if you're not, I got to, I got to sit there behind the plate calling like 200 or 250 pitches. And I have to get everyone right because if mm -hmm. I get one wrong, I got a parent or a coach yelling at me. Yep. So that I love the focus and the pressure of it to get everything right. And I'm not always right. I think I missed the pitch like in 1987, but that goes that's the point. No, but I mean, I've missed calls and I've missed pitches and, you know, I, I, it, but it's, it's the discipline and the focus outside when I'm working. So I would go to a game, I'd go do high school varsity game and I'd be go there like at 345 in the afternoon. So after a full day of work, I have to just separate myself, go out on the field and call 250 pitches and get them all right in my mind. So that's one reason. The other reason, which which relates directly to direct marketing and direct response marketing, is customer service and fulfillment. Because I have a whole chapter in Over Deliver. Chapter eight is customer service and fulfillment. Customer service and fulfillment are marketing functions. And so the idea that the marketing, the the the, the customer service rep 
for your company or the person that answers the phone when someone's calling to complain is on the front line of your company. And yet those people are generally treated as clerks. And so I realize as an umpire, I'm treated as a clerk of sorts. You know, the best thing I can get after I umpire a good game is someone will say to me, good game ump. That's it. Or someone will say, good job back there. That's the best I get. So the best that a customer service rep gets, my Siri's asking me a question. (laughs) But a customer service rep gets nothing, gets nothing. So what I emphasized in Over Deliver is that these people might be your most important employees. Treat them as such. Because the thing is, they love, they're people like that are problem solvers. They love to get make, make order out of chaos. And we talk about a Little League game. Now, I do Little League at a very high level. I've done three Eastern Regional tournaments in Little League. I've done a World Series. So I've done Little League at the highest level. And if there are coaches and parents there too. And the parents are, are their own animal, which you already alluded to. So the thing is, you really need something to, to, to hone in on the fact that no one came to the game to see you. You don't want to make yourself the center of attention and you want to create order out of chaos. And creating order out of chaos is something that people like in customer service, the best customer service reps aren't looking for fame and fortune. Neither is an umpire. An umpire looking for fame and fortune is destined to be unsuccessful. They'll either be an umpire their whole life and be totally arrogant and everybody will hate them, or they'll quit because they they don't get enough of the limelight. They're not getting enough of the fame. You have to go in with no 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 ego. No, fa- I have ego in terms of make, getting the calls right, but I have no ego, and I feel the same way in marketing. You know, yeah. if you put your ego first in marketing, you're going to get killed. You're going to get killed in the marketplace. And so I'm just so passionate about this concept of the 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 person who is the best customer service rep puts their ego aside, they love making order out of chaos, and they are the heroes in your company. And you have to treat them as such. 100%, 100%. Compensation levels and all of that. So I emphasize that in the chapter on, on customer service and fulfillment. And I told the story of, you know, umpiring and use that as a, as, as a, as a metaphor for marketing. And yeah, it's, I, it's, it's been a real, it's great lessons for a lot of people. So much. And I want to, I want to pull out some things that I heard that you didn't necessarily say that I think are really important too, because I know this is planting a seed because it was a, it was a breakthrough for me in this time of reading over deliver talking about, it was a, it was a small chunk and it, you didn't really make that big of a deal about it. But one of the key components of extending the lifetime value of a customer is alignment, like making sure that your business is in alignment with your superpowers and who you naturally are. And what I loved in your response to that too, is that you said right away, you love the focus and pressure of getting things right, the discipline that that requires. So it's like you you found umpiring as a way to have another way of expressing that superpower of yours that you leverage in your career of direct response, making sure that you were able to dial everything in the, the list, the offer, the creative. And, you know, so, and, and like you said too, it's like, you didn't, you don't necessarily get the limelight as a, as a umpire, but it's, it's that internal motivation and passion that you had for making sure that all the, all the boats are sailing smoothly to make sure that everybody's happy, that there's so much power to that. So I love that, Brian. Yeah, go ahead. Marty Edelston, who was my mentor at Boardroom, one of the one of the four. I have a, a section in the, in the introduction, I think, or maybe it's in, in chapter one, where I talk about the four pillars to become extraordinary, which was actually the the uh, eulogy that I 
it was actually the the basis of the eulogy I gave for Marty at his funeral. And the number four was just save lives. Like Marty wanted to save lives with his public, our publications at boardroom were health oriented, finance oriented, and he was so focused on saving lives. Well, I'm not going to say if you're an umpire, you're saving lives, or if you're a marketer of supplements, you could say you're saving lives, but you're probably just making people healthier, which will lead to possibly a longer life. But the idea of lifetime value, which I'm glad you brought up, is another chapter alone in over yeah, it is. Because over lifetime value is everything in marketing. You know, it's the idea of, you know, you want to be a one-hit wonder and make millions on one product, or do you want customers forever? And yeah. I think that so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pause you for one second, Brian, because I, I want to get to over deliver, but I also want to zoom in on something that you just brought up there. I want to go a little bit deeper about Marty Edelson, and then we can kind of go into some of the, the okay. lifetime value stuff like that. Because I, I know it's it's really really important for you about mentorship and like and learning for, like it is so clear how passionate you are about learning from people and standing on the shoulders of giants. You even have the word Titan Titan marketing because you've learned from the best Dan Kennedy, Gene Schwartz, Jay Abraham, all those people. And 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 Marty, I I think you I heard you say he's like you're ultimate mentor. And so I, I think it would, it would, it would help people to understand a little bit more about Marty as we kind of go into some of this other stuff like this. And in, in the, one of the bonuses that you have in over deliver, one of the things you talked about is this incredible story that I think kind of encapsulates a little bit about Marty. And maybe you, maybe you would say otherwise, but Kelly Michaels, talk to us a little bit about Marty Edelson and oh. Kelly, Kelly Michaels. And then I, and then we can kind of pick apart some of the mentorship components of it. Hey, you are, you are curious because that's not, <laughs> in the book. but I didn't even remember the whole story, but the basic story is that Kelly Michaels was a, and this is beyond curious, right? <laughs> the definition, Marty, one, one of the four pillars that made him extraordinary, not only saving lives, was his insatiable curiosity. And that's the, and that, and then I take that into how I see every copywriter and marketer today. If you're going to be a world-class marketer or copywriter, you must be insatiably curious. So there was this, I think she was a school teacher, like a, I don't know, elementary school teacher in New Jersey. Marty was a, a Jersey guy from Newark, New Jersey. And he was reading an article about this Kelly Michaels who was accused of molesting kids in the classroom. And he he knew the writer of the article from the New York Times who was exploring it because it didn't make sense to her. And she went to Marty for advice saying, Marty, this doesn't make sense to me. How do I make sense of it? And, and she was the reporter. Marty wasn't even the investigative reporter. He's telling the investigative reporter the questions to ask. Not that Marty was an expert in you know, you know, uh, uh, child, uh, uh, you know, uh, taking advantage of children, you know, but he, he, he gave her advice. And then he went on an interview with her to interview Kelly Michaels. And it's a long story, but they went to court. Everything was dismissed. It was like a total farce. It was basically, I mean, sometimes, you know, kids tell stories and they're true. Right. And that's when you you know, then you have a Jerry Sandusky at Penn State where, you know, all the stories were true about how he molested the players or, or the young the young kids in his in his, you know, foundation. And so it can go that way. But sometimes when it just doesn't make sense, you need to dig deeper. And so the 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 and the upshot of the story is that Marty became lifelong friends with Kelly Michaels. Kelly Michaels ended up getting instead of going to jail for probably 20 or 30 years. She ended up getting married. She had kids. 
her kids saw Marty as Uncle Marty. It was like this beautiful story. I probably missed some little facts, but the 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 the, the basics the basic premise is that Marty didn't accept anything at face value. And that's why all of our promotion, you know, our promotions at boardroom, you know, Marty played the bloodhound. He was the guy, he wasn't a guru. He wasn't a, I say he used to say I'm 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 a I'm a I'm an ordinary guy who's been able who's able who's been able to do extraordinary things. And when we talked about it all the time, I said, Marty, you are extraordinary because of your curiosity, because you don't take in fact, we had a we had a mailing piece once. It was it was a magalog, so it looks like a magazine, but it's it's actually a promotion for a book. The book was called the Big Black Book, and it's all kinds of consumer tidbits and information. And it was one of my favorite packages we ever did. It was written by Eric Betwell, a fantastic copywriter in the in the same category as Gary Bensavenga, not as well known. And he 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 learned from Gary Bensavenga. And the cover of the magalog says. 12 smiling swindlers. And then the, the smiling swindlers, who are they? Your accountant, your lawyer, the car dealer, the 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 <laughs> you, you're, you're the guy who runs the, the who, who runs the dry cleaner. Sure. Everybody is a swindler. You have to, it's sort of like guilty until proven innocent, the concept. Now it is a paranoid, a paranoid way to live your life. But he, Marty, was not an expert in any one thing. He was an expert in a lot of things because he read everything, sort of like Gene Schwartz, and they were buddies, of course. And so, and we can talk about Gene Schwartz too, if you want. But but, and he was an amazing man and a mentor and a friend. And Breakthrough Advertising is one of the best books ever written on human behavior. But going back to Marty, he would just always ask the next question that no one would ask, and so. He became like the bloodhound. So when he he was featured in in the mailing pieces, but not as a guru, but that I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I'm gonna uncover what's going what's what's wrong in the world, and I'm gonna prevent bad stuff happening from you. It's a great it's a great copy platform when you're not an expert in any one thing. Now, if you're a doctor and and you're running a health newsletter, yeah, you want to put a white coat on and put a stethoscope around your neck. And you've got credibility automatically. Marty had didn't have that credibility going in, but because he became a publisher, because he he hobnobbed with some of the smartest people in the world by design. I mean, the boardroom dinners were legendary, and that's in chapter ten of Over Deliver. I call them intentional dinners. Marty, and it wasn't just networking. You know, it's not. And I I even start chapter ten. I said I hate the word networking. It's contributing to connect. You contribute 100 zero, 100% with no expectation of return in every relationship. And lo and behold, what you get back is more than you'll ever dream of. Mm-hmm. But you're not calculating it. It's not quid pro quo. It's not tit for tat. So, you know, Marty just taught me so much about what, I mean, I am I am just a sliver of his curiosity. I, I'm not saying that just to be humble. He was just a machine. and I guess the, the, the one of the last thing I'll say about Marty is that you know you know how they say when you know the, when you're lying on your deathbed you know you won't think about I should have spent more time at the office not true for Marty Marty lived his work and so I remember I was I think this is an overdeliver it was in one of my blogs but when I I used to leave the office I was usually the second last to leave in the office so I would leave at 
you know, between seven and eight o'clock at night, a lot of nights. And so the way the office was set up, I would leave. And then down this long hallway was Marty's office, door open, him facing forward. And so the routine was, I would go out and I just yell, crawl, you know, yell, because I had to yell, it was a long hallway. Good night, Marty. And he'd go, good night, Brian. And it was like a, it was like a routine. And one night I said, you know what? I got I, I stopped and I said, I gotta go back and I gotta I gotta go check. I gotta go ask him a question. So I went to his office and he's sitting there doing like, I'm not gonna say it was mundane work, but meticulous stuff that probably didn't mean a hill of beans. Like he was moving a rule an eighth of an inch on the cover of one of the newsletters just because he wanted to do it. And he would also maybe editing some copy that was important, but he also would do stuff that just seems so something like minutia. And I said, Marty, I got to ask you a question. They say that, you know, most people would never lie in their deathbed thinking that they could have spent more time at the office. That's not you, is it? He said, no. He said, you know, if, he said something to the effect of, if I drop dead at my desk, I'll be fine with that. And it's a, I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's the way to live your life, but it just shows you how pure he was so that then you take what you can from that and bring into your personality what you want to take from that. So like Dan Kennedy, Dan Kennedy, he's an acquired taste. He's like the, you know, the king of marketing. However, you know, I don't want to create a mode around myself where you have to reach me, you have to only fax, and I don't want to not use a cell phone. And I want to email my constituents back because I get an endorphin rush by engaging with my audience. Dan has no interest in doing that. However, knowing how to create a mode around yourself and take it under advisement for your own life is always a good thing to do. You take pieces yeah. of everybody in your life and you mold what your life's going to be. And there's an exercise I did in a launch for one of my masterminds. And it was who you're looking for is you. I got that from Dan Sullivan, you know, our strategic coach. Because who you're looking for is you is not an egocentric thing. It's who you're looking for is you is that you need, you, you are, you know, they always say you're, you know, you're the best of the five people, five most important people around you. There's a lot of different theories around that. And so I believe that, you want to take what take from each person that you consider a mentor, someone who you learn from, and bring it into your personality, bring it into your life. But not everything, not everything. You know, I don't want to be someone else. Envy is the worst thing. Yeah. Envy is illness. Yeah. There, oh man, everybody needs to like backskip. You just dropped so much gold there, Brian. I don't want to. I just want to make sure people don't don't miss it. And again, obviously, lots of the stuff that you just shared. There's some of your underlying philosophy and over deliver, so people can go grab a copy. But a hundred zero, go listen to that part of Brian talking about that end because I think it's such a liberating way of looking at life. Because I think. It, like exactly like you said, it's like the natural way is that we want to kind of make sure that we're not overgiving or meeting in the middle and that kind of stuff. But when you liberate yourself, you take the responsibility of just giving on a hundred zero and not expecting anything in return. That's super powerful. Everything you shared about curiosity being the threat. I noticed that because in the book, you talk about the, the four pillars of becoming extraordinary and the seven characteristics of being a great copywriter. And I think curiosity is the only one that overlaps from those two lists. I could be, I could be incorrect, but I, I think that's, that's really, really powerful. And there was, you, you were getting right there. I don't know if you have the quote, Brian, if you don't, I have, I have it. Cause I literally, this was so profound for me. And I think it 
kind of will conclude the the topic of Marty Edelson and the mentorship thing. Do you happen to have the quote about a master in the art of living draws no sharp yes, distinction? Do you have that? Because I think that that just kind of puts a puts a final stamp yeah. on this. This was so good. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's on it was on the back. This was on the back of Marty's business card. And I have it, I have it on my wall here. So the master in the art of living makes little distinction between his work and his play, his labor and his leisure, his mind and his body his education and his recreation, his love and his religion. He hardly knows which is which. He simply he simply pursues his vision of excellence in whatever he does, leaving others to decide whether he is working or playing. To him, he is always doing both. And that's like a so Zen. Good. Yeah, it's so good. So and good. But, you, but he took it to, I will say, Marty took it to an extreme and he, he, he did neglect, I mean, again, it's, it's personal preference. We were just talking about your new baby. And, you know, we were saying that, you know, you just, you know, there are some things you just never want to neglect, right? And he neglected a lot of his family life and a lot of stuff. He got joy out of his kids and he got joy out of his, his personal life. But I think, I think he was so married to his work and, this notion of being, you know, addicted to your work, and it's it, it you can go over a line, but if it's if it, it's not going over a line for you, then it's a great way to live your life. Yeah. Still, and I think, do you you know Todd Herman, right? Is that another one of our yes. overlaps of you? Okay, so I know Todd Todd Herman's got everybody go listen to the episode with Todd because he's got alter this whole concept ego. called the alter ego effect. Yeah, and it's so good. And I, I love what you shared too about like pull the best of what you see from your mentors and like whatever resonates with you. And that can kind of be your kind of composite version of you that you can live out in the world. And so if anybody wants to dive deeper into the alter ego concept, but I think that's really, really profound. I love that so much. So man, Brian, this has been so great. Just talking about kind of like your core, there's so much more on your, your philosophies of relationship building and all that kind of stuff. So maybe we can kind of revisit some of that, but I thought maybe we can maybe start talking about the bridge between the work that we were just talking about and Marty being the founder of boardroom and, and some of the foundational concepts of direct response. And so I thought another great place to start would be a kind of a funny story. So Gordon Grossman said something to you that caused you to go on a shopping spree. <laughs> I, would, I would love for you to talk about that story. And then there's a reason why I want to unpack some of that, but we'd love for you to share what he shared and then why you, what your crazy shopping spree was. <laughs> this is, it ended up being a great, I didn't know it was going to be a great story when I did it. Cause I was, <laughs> but Gordon Grossman was the, was one of our consultants. I mean, Marty, always went for, for, you know, he always felt that, you know, the best and the brightest were outside, you know, plus internally you had great employees, but the, the, the wisdom was everywhere. And so we hired only the best copywriters, only the best consultants, and we paid top dollar for them. Gordon Grossman was one of the business builders at Reader's Digest. I'm sure a lot of your listeners don't even know what the Reader's Digest is or was, but it was basically direct marketing heaven in the 1960s. It was the place that invented regression modeling for direct mail. They were, they invented the sweepstakes. All of these things are all like, you know, still in the marketing orbit today, but they originated a lot of them with Reader's Digest. And Gordon Grossman was one of the one of the business builders there in the in the 60s and 70s. So I met Gordon in the 1980s and he became a consultant for us an amazing consultant on database and marketing and everything. But he also, I could go to him for anything. And so we used to develop books at Boardroom 
that were basically greatest hits of our newsletters, like the big black book I mentioned before. We had the book of inside information, which was all the 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 uh, a compendium of all of our best articles on all different topics: health, fitness, home, auto, everything, uh, finance. And so, and then we had health books also. We had health just health books from our health newsletters, and we had a tax book, which was the the, the combination of stuff from our tax newsletters. And Gordon said to me one day, and this was the quote, it was, Brian, you're going to run out of content soon. <laughs> Basically, that's what he told me. And because we were like, as we always say, we re-sliced the salami. So we had health and finance in this book. And then we did a health book. We took the health from the finance and we made it a new book. Not completely the same, but a lot of overlapping content. And But I mean, it was doing fine. I mean, we were selling a ton of books. I mean, millions and millions of books through direct mail, hardcover. 400 to 600 page books through the mail. And we had a great book business, but we're running out of content for new books. And so I learned from Gordon first how to do concept testing, which was basically you survey your audience on books that they might want to buy. I have all section in that and over deliver of how to do concept testing, both offline and online. But the big- Is that the same thing as Q testing or is that something I missed? Yes, Q testing. Okay, okay, got it. So Q testing is questionnaire testing. It's also called concept testing. And it's basically for new product development, how you get your existing customers, your best customers to tell you what the next product they might not, might want. So that, that's, a, that's, a, that's an addendum to the story of the shopping story. Yeah. Gordon said to me, you know, you're going to run out of content. And so what I did was it just occurred to me there were these things called bookstores back then. I don't know if people know about them. I mean, it's not Amazon. This was actually- Yeah, I was going to say Amazon? What is Barnes? <laughs> Don't know the physical ones. <laughs> physical ones. Barnes & Noble, Borders, Walden Books. These were actually physical bookstores that were not coffee shops. And so so I went to the local Barnes & Noble, huge bookstore. I mean, these were huge bookstores. There aren't just so few of them today. And I go in there. And what I did was, because I understood database marketing, I understood all of the topics that would be- applicable to our audience. So I would I went to all the sections in the bookstore that a- applied to the boardroom database, meaning the boardroom customers have bought books in those categories. So I went around the store. I went to finance and investing. I went to tax planning. I went to estate planning. I went to all health, both, both natural and traditional, east and west. I went to home repair, you know, home, home improvements, auto repair, all the different topics that we cover in our newsletters and books, I went to the bookshelves and lo and behold, there were tons of books on the shelves with like an inch of dust on every one of them sitting there waiting to be bought and waiting to be sold, but not in that bookstore. And so I basically, the story goes, I had a Toyota, a 1984 Toyota Camry and I put probably $800 or $900 worth of books. I bought them from all the different categories, put them in the trunk of my car. The, I can't imagine what the clerk's face was like when you pulled up. They're like, well, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm buying like all these hardcover and softcover <laughs> books on all different topics and getting them into my car. You know, the the back of the car was like on the ground, basically. And I went back to my, and then and then the procedure went like this. I went back to my office. I I basically went through, the first stop was our editors. And I asked them, which book, and they this was not not foolproof, but I wanted to let them know which books would you be open 
to putting the bottom line boardroom name on. Like, and I I took it with a grain of salt only because the editors didn't know very much about marketing. So I needed to just get their gut feel if a book was like inappropriate or something. Because I couldn't read all the books. I need an editor to read them first or at least skim them to tell me what's inside. I knew the title made sense. I looked at the table of contents while I was in the bookstore and it made sense. And what I was looking for were things in the book that could create exciting teasers, what we call fascinations, bullet points. So I was looking for stuff in the book that would create the direct mail piece that we could put together. So I was basically taking the book and creating the marketing from the book, something I learned from Gene Schwartz, because he used to say he didn't write copy, he assembled copy. And by assembling copy, you assemble it from the copy in the book, and then you create the promotion from it. So after the after the I let the I let the editors like throw out a bunch of books that they said we you should never put our name on this. The doctor is not credible. The finance guy went to jail or whatever. The author is a crook, whatever. Then I took what was left and started asking our copy our top copywriters which books could you write a package for us that would rival the kinds of packages that you've written for us over the decades with our own copy, with our own our own books, our own content. And from there, we narrowed it down further and that's how we created our cue tests. So then we would write a blurb. I used to call the uh, person who wrote our blurbs a blurbologist, a different kind of copywriter. And she was just masterful at writing a blurb that encompassed what was in the book. So it wasn't like something that was not in the book. Because if you if you do a blurb and they say they the the people would say they the customers would say they'd order it, you have to make sure that you're going to deliver that book. Otherwise, they're not going to buy it, right? So it had to, it had to be a match. And so the books that scored highest on the Q test that we already had these books that we had to take the dust off from Barnes and Noble, we would recreate them. We go we go to the publisher of that book and say we want to create a, a direct marketing a direct mail version of this book and we'll pay you a 10% royalty on all sales and they jumped at that i mean these are books that might have sold at the most 5 or 6000 copies in, yeah. in, in their history and what we created is that when we recreated the book some of them were soft cover we created a hard cover for higher perceived value we created premiums and bonuses from either copy from the book or we created stuff from our own stuff, became the premiums. So we created a package, basically, that you couldn't even compare to the book that was on Barnes & Noble in the first place. But it was basically that book. And we could charge, instead of discounting the book at you know $7 at Barnes & Noble, we created $39 hardcover books. So it was basically a metamorphosis of taking content that was undervalued, underutilized, but valuable that we then created a direct mail division. And that created a $45 million book division for boardroom. And in bottom line was our other news, our consumer newsletter. Yeah. And basically the, I have a couple of, a couple of, these are real stories, but one of the public was a small publisher. And one of the books we got was encyclopedia of natural healing. They had sold maybe 3000 copies at $20. And after we got done with the book and created the whole package for it, that book, I think, sold 800,000 copies in direct wow. mail. And even at 10% royalty, they made more money than they ever would have imagined on this book. So, you know, direct mail at the time scaled. It still scales, but the scaling 
is different because online is so much more economical and efficient. But direct mail is still a a, a, a living, breathing medium. But yeah. it was, but we got so much out of that 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 my, my field trip to Barnes and Noble. Actually, the first blog post I did it was hanging around with a hand truck at Barnes and Noble because I actually <laughs> had a hand truck to go to all the different departments to pile up the books. So it, it was it was a an amazing it's it's not just an amazing story but it it's a it's so indicative and I didn't you know I didn't do anything special except connected the dots of if my database if my customers want books in these categories and there are books available in these categories that are undersold underutilized undervalued maybe there's some kickass content that I can create in a new format with a new, with a new, you know, new cover and new bonuses that becomes like an apples to oranges comparison to the original book. And I've got a whole new business because I had the direct mail machinery. I had yeah. copyright. I had the list. I knew how to buy lists. I knew how to create the, the 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 irresistible offer for books. So I had all the tools to do it. I just needed the content and and the and the copywriter's vision. And my editor's approval that putting our name on it, because we're basically white labeling. Now we're taking the white label. The book was a real book by a real author. And we would basically put our name on it for the 10% royalty we would pay. There's, oh man, that's so fun. Cause literally anyone, anybody can imagine being in one of those aisles next to a crazy guy with a hand truck with a stack of <laughs> pile of books. I love, so I love that story for so many levels. And there's so much gold that you just shared there that I, I just want to make sure that isn't isn't missed. I just want to double down and d highlight on that. One of the things that you shared in the book too that I that related to this in my mind is assessing your assets. You talked about how like, you know, lots of times we think we need to have these crazy new ideas or go create new stuff, but like lots of the times the stuff that is the most valuable is literally just sitting underutilized. And I think this is a story that not necessarily assets that you owned at the time, but the fact that you don't necessarily always have to be the one that's responsible for creating stuff as long as you understand the fundamental principles of direct response as you said, you can take something that was literally an underutilized assets at a $45 million line. And, and the other context that I think, you know, people heard this from your bio, but you were responsible for over selling over a billion dollars of the books, $39 at a time. That's in, or worth the products, $39 at a time. Like that's, that's, yeah, that, that's incredible. And like, the, so it's actually the, the stupid. It's actually this because <laughs> I didn't, we didn't have an Ascension program. We didn't know anything about that at the time. So there's, there is some stupidity in that, but there was, we always did. We always had multi-buyers because of how we structured our database and how yeah. we did modeling through our database. So we were, able to, we were able to make a lot of money, but I think we missed, a, in fact, Agora, which is the largest privately held direct marketing company in the world. They're the largest newsletter publisher, and they were friendly competitors in the Mariana Rivera, in the Mariana Rivera scheme of things back in the 80s and 90s with us. And they, you know, they were, I, they, they have, their copywriting team just recently, a couple of years ago, asked me to be on a with, meet with them. And one of the guys asked the dirty question of me, like, what were the biggest like regrets you have at boardroom? And one of them was never having an Ascension program. I didn't even I didn't even know that. I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even know. I knew how to do, create multi-buyers, yeah. cross-selling and upselling. But I didn't understand that, especially well. One, once we we got into the world of digital content, I started pursuing it, and then I left boardroom. 
Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Cause like, I know we, we talked way earlier and I said we would come here later about lifetime value. And I think this is kind of like, this fits in this kind of world of extending lifetime value. It's like, if you're selling something that's, you know, $39 at a time, what would it take if you built an Ascension model where, you know, somebody that would once spent a $39 book might become something significantly more valuable. So I, I know I, I wanted to make sure we didn't miss this as one of the key components of direct response. And you talked about, I think I pulled this, this quote here. I can safely say that calculating lifetime value and basing all of our marketing decisions on this was the single best reason boardroom became as large as it did. So I, if I had to pick one, even though there's so many good things you talk about in the book, I felt like lifetime value would be like a great thing to expand on. So maybe share a little bit about the concept of the bogey and, and how that kind of helped you inform some of your decisions in, in boardroom. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other major consultant in direct mail besides Gordon Grossman was Dick Benson. And Dick Benson was probably, definitely the smartest man who ever lived in the direct mail industry. He wrote a book called Secrets of Successful Direct Mail. The book is out of print, but you can get it free from me as a PDF when you buy Overdeliver on overdeliverbook.com. And it's one of, I'm proud to have, you know, to have available that book forever now for everybody as a PDF. I have some hard copies here, but I don't sell those. So Benson was, he, I used to call him the bogeyman, not the boogeyman, the bogeyman. And he, but the, what the bogey, the bogey is nothing that extravagant. What the bogey is, is basically within your, the context of your, the financial structure of your business. It's basically saying, how much can I lose on the first order to make it, to make my money back in some reasonable amount of time that fits with my cash flow? That's the basic definition of the bogey. And so basically, if if you have tight cash flow, you don't have a lot of money in the bank, if you can determine how much I can lose on a first order, whether it's for a book or a subscription, and a subscription is better because you can calculate the second and third year renewals on a subscription once you have some history, which adds into the original money that you're getting from a customer you're not getting it immediately, but it definitely works in to the lifetime value. It works into the bogey too. So how much can I lose on the first order to make it back in a reasonable amount of time? Now, when we started enacting the bogey at Boardroom, we had some money in the bank finally. We didn't, we were in, in the early 80s, we struggled with cash flow like every other direct marketer, because when you, you know, you have to pay for postage and printing up front, and then you don't get your responses. So it, it becomes more difficult. To create to create a, a positive cash flow, so we we would so we we would originally we had enough money in the bank where we could say we're willing to lose you know six dollars an order because we'll make it back within within the first year. So it was a, it was a one year bogey, and that one year bogey was based on the fact that we were in business for a while. We knew the renewal rates, we knew the cross promotion rates of a book, so we knew how many people would buy a second book. We also had a book that was an annual, which was had had built-in renewals in them. So we had like bogeys for everything, both books and newsletters. And as we realized that we were accumulating so much cash because we were so ruthless and diligent to that bogey that by the time we went out two years from the time we set the bogey, the money in the bank happened to increase. Why? because it was a good calculation of how much we got back from the original order. And it went on and on where we ended up having a two-year bogey. We had a three-year bogey. 
because we were able to invest. It's basically how much can you invest in new in new business? And when the internet came along and email came along, it became so much more efficient to basically invest in new customers. What I, what I was startled at early on in my career on online was how many marketers weren't doing it because they hadn't learned the concept of losing money on your first order. Most online marketers, when they were starting out, they needed to make money on that first order. Some of it was desperation because they needed, they had no cash in the bank, they had no you know resources, so they had to make the money, but they were missing the boat. And, and the marketers that understood how much they could afford to lose on the first order, at least in a short amount of time, ended up being the winner. Dan Kennedy has an expression. He always says, you know, the person, the, the 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 company or the marketer that who spends the most money on media wins. And it's not just spend it, you know, frivolously. It's spending it, knowing your numbers, knowing, you know, having the discipline. In fact, there there is. I have a quote on my wall which came from the war room, the boardroom that I posted in my office here, and it was from Dick Benson. He says, "You have to believe your numbers because it, it's all you got." But you make sure you calculate them right. And you need to have statistical significance. I talk about that in Overdeliver in this concept that, you know, online marketers didn't understand when they got into it, the concept of statistical significance. You know, eight orders versus six orders on a split test is not statistical significance. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to have, be able to do things that, and 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 this was invented way before me and I'm old. So, you know, this is, these are just core concepts of direct marketing that stand the test of time and they will stand the test of time forever. And it's not just the bogey. It's basically, it ties into lifetime value. It ties into RFM, recency, frequency, and monetary value, which is chapter four of Overdeliver, which is RFM and list and 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 build and list building, because RFM is not a rule of thumb in direct marketing. It's how be- how customers behave in the marketplace. Yeah, they behave 100%. by recency, like when they when they how recently have they have they ordered or engaged with you? How frequently do they how frequently have they done? And then how much money that had to spend? It's recency, frequency, monetary value, and so all of that goes into calculating bogeys. All of that goes into creating statistical significance. So it's all blended into creating marketing that makes sense, that's not frivolous, that's not haphazard, and anyone can do it. And if you can't do it, you can find people to do it for you. You can find old timers like me, or you can find the best of the best in marketing today who live by it because they don't want to go bankrupt. You know? This is so good. And I, 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 another chapter of your book is, I think it's called Original Source, or it's a component of, yeah, Original Source Chapter 2. And I think that's one thing I would just say to anyone that, like, first of all, like, again, I said at the beginning, I'll say it again, go pick up your copy of Overdeliver. Like, you, you like, literally, the bo- like, I could talk this up for forever, Brian, but the Overdeliver bonus page with the book is just insane. It, Brian literally lives out the definition of the word Overdeliver. I, I don't think I shared this with you yet, Brian, but like, I've listened to Jay Abraham's course that you give away in the download page yeah. multiple times. Like, it's so good. And I've dove into like all that stuff. So like, Literally, and don't do this, don't do this, but I'm going to say it. But if you if you got Overdeliver and didn't read a word of Overdeliver, and you just checked out the bonuses, it would be worth so much. So, But Overdeliver, I think one of the things that I just love so much about it is that that you talk about original source, but it's so important to understand the first principles that so many things is based off of. It's kind of like, I'm actually rereading right now. 
thinking grow rich and it's so funny kind of rereading thinking grow rich because you see like lots of the derivations that have been created from that work today that all stem from kind of like that some of that original thinking and even his was an original thinking because he was basing it off of everyone else that came before him right but but it's still so so empowering so powerful to understand the core concepts and so i just wanted to make sure that you're not you, you pay deep attention to what Brian's saying. And this is stuff that I'm, I'm revisiting over and over again. It's so important, especially like knowing this LTV stuff. And one of the breakthroughs I had this time coming through over deliver Brian was like, I don't know how I missed it, but just calculating LTV per acquisition channel and per product. I didn't realize, you know, when I originally thought of the concept of lifetime value, it's like, Oh, it's just your customer and how long they, they are per lifetime. But the, the, the value of understanding the channel that they came from and the product that they bought there's so many nuances and intricacies to understanding this, but once you know your numbers, the expansion that you can have from that is so powerful. So I know we're, we're kind of running out of time, Brian, but I want to double down on this one thing that, cause I think it's so, so important. And this has been my journey over the past year, I would say is there was, I had this kind of moment where I had to like pause everything I was doing and be like, I had to figure out who I am, like answer the, the, the deepest questions. Like, who am I? What are my superpowers? What do I want in the world? Who I want to serve? And I spent a long time answering those questions to find that alignment. And I'm so glad that I, I put in the work because now I'm, I'm super ready for lots of other stuff coming up. But the reason why I wanted to come back here is because it, it seems to me, I don't, and I've never seen this correlated before, is the key to lifetime value. A big part of it is, yes, it's understanding your numbers, but it is having that congruency. It's having that alignment with your business and who you are and how you show up in the world. So I don't think I've heard this really talked about a lot in the in the concept of extending lifetime value, but I would love for you to maybe share about the importance of understanding at the core, your business, your core values, who you are, your superpowers, and and the importance of that, that, that impacts the lifetime value of a customer. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a question that I could talk about for hours, <laughs> almost out of time, but I, I, I will say that it's, I had a quote in there, I think, in the book that, you know, customers refund transactions, not relationships, but it's not mm. just your customers. Everybody, anything that's transactional, and there are transactions you make in life, of course, but if the more, the, the fewer the transactions and the more you're living in relationships, it's going to, it's all about, that's how you create lifetime value. And, you know, transaction implies one hit wonders. Transaction implies cash for product. Transaction implies you do for me, I do for you, quid pro quo. Whereas relationships can have things like 100 zero. Mm -hmm. Relationships can have things like contributing to connect as opposed to just networking. So all it's funny because I often say that, you know, that some people don't think that uh, personal improvement and and you know uh you know the the light life skills don't apply to marketing they are so aligned i mean sometimes i don't know i'm writing my blog posts every week and i want to it's a marketing blog post my book is is a marketing book and i don't consider myself a you know a self-improvement guru i don't consider i don't consider myself a, a marketing guru i just consider myself someone who has basically borrowed everything that I've learned from someone else. I have invented a goddamn thing. And yet I've been able to transfer the knowledge from so many mentors, so many resources, and created congruence. It's a great word. Congruence with my business and my life. It's not perfect. I'm not perfect by any means. 
But the idea of living congruently is so much easier too. It's like, you don't have to think about, always tell the truth, live with integrity, don't lie. And that it's true in life. It's true in marketing. Like, don't lie about what your product does. Don't lie to your spouse, you know, when you're having an affair, if you're having an affair, you know, it, it, it just, you know, marketing, I always say marketing isn't everything. It's the only thing. And it sounds like I'm a marketing whore when I say that. I don't say it from there. <laughs> and and so when I, I'll give you a good example. So when I went, I went and spoke, I've spoken internationally many times and I love speaking internationally because, you know, you go on stage and you know you're being perceived as the ugly American. However, every other country knows that United States is the leader in marketing. So, but they also know um, United States is the leader in, 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 in thievery. And they're the leaders in bad marketing, just like good marketing. So I had I went I went to Hungary, which was a good a good base level because Hungary, I, I went I went there. The guy who was hosting the event is the is the you know the top marketing guy in Hungary. He's a he's a he's a guru there. And I had to start my my presentation with marketing is not evil, from a potential evil marketer from the United States who they were already sitting on their hands being skeptical about. So I had to like prove that this concept of, you know, you can market and be aggressive at any, at any level you want. You don't have to be super aggressive about everything. You can be passive and still sell. You can do it in, in any, along a, along a continuum of so many different, in so many different ways, but it's not evil to give somebody what they need in a you know in a, in a in a in a with integrity and congruence and consistency and so i had to like just build all of that up and then i had my second part after i had to prove that marketing is not evil i had to prove that marketing isn't everything it's the only thing like i basically asked these hungarian and i've done it i've done the same thing in italy i've done the same thing in germany i've done the same thing in the Netherlands, I've done the same thing in France. Basically, if you have something you want to share with the world, do you want to share it with hundreds of people? You want or dozens of people? Or do you want to possibly share it with millions of people? You're going to have to do marketing. It's not all just come to you. And so 100%. how you market is not, there's no one way to do it. But focusing on the fundamentals of RFM and lifetime value and high integrity copy and copy that meets the moment and meets the the content that you're selling and what well, how you sell is how people are going to respond so make sure they meet each other so i don't know if i really answered your question no you did i i i think it's so so important to to consider i think the, the way i would summarize what you said and this this is coming out of my brain like something that jay abraham would say like self improvement and business are inextricably intertwined like they you really <laughs> this is a big language like jay would but but like you can't unmix them and so like doing that work on yourself knowing the fact that your business is an expression of who you are at your core like having that alignment and just being who you are at all different levels is just so important and like people are going to see through that you are working on a transformational relationship component instead of a transactional one when they sense that congruency and 
maybe you and I could probably have a discussion completely separately for this, but in many ways, I kind of view marketing as relationship building at scale. And if you kind of like view, if you view it from that lens, it, it treats how you treat marketing differently, because I think that people view it, view it completely differently that way. So I don't, yeah. Spot on. But I, I will say that, that, you know, it's very easy to, to kind of then based on where we're talking about integrity and high level marketing and all that. So now I'll play devil's advocate against ourselves. Just to just to prove a point, there are people, there are marketers, for example, who they're that they want to want to take pictures in front of Lamborghinis. They call them the Lambo boys. You know, they want to tell you how to get rich quick. They want to, you know, all the headlines. If that's who they are, and they're being, I'll say authentic, although I hate that word, they're being authentic to who they are. It's 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 one way to sell. It's one way to do marketing. Not the way we're choosing. You know, you and I aren't going to choose that way. However, you know, as long as you're not lying, that you're not trying to swindle people, that you're not being doing something criminal, there are a lot of ways to do it. And so I would never tell anyone my way is the highway. It's not. However, you know, I think you you hit it on the head. Being consistent, congruent, being true to yourself. You also sleep better at night when you're congruent and consistent. I used to like, I I tell you, I I take it so into heart when I have an unhappy customer or somebody kind of says something like derogatory about me. Not that I don't think that they might be right. In fact, interestingly, that chapter, chapter two about original source, I got the worst. I, I had I had um six one star reviews on Amazon for over deliver out of like 180 reviews. And I dissected the six one-star reviews. You always want to read your one-star reviews and your five-star reviews. Five-star reviews gives you confidence. One-star reviews give you learning. And if you read the one-star reviews and say everything that they're saying is correct, even if it's not, you can take it in and figure out what's going on. There was one guy, a one-star review, basically saying that the the chapter on original source could have been written in two sentences, and all I was was repetitive. And he he then he went he like listed everything that I said in the chapter that was repetitive, and I said to myself, he's right, it is repetitive. I think I was I, I, when I didn't think about how repetitive, so I would have maybe shortened it a little bit, but it was repetitive for a reason because the fundamentals and going back to original source is this. It's why it's chapter two. Chapter one is the concept of over-deliver. Chapter two is original source. Because and chapter three is how paying postage made me a better marketer. I kind of had this, this bedrock of my career that I needed to share. Over-delivery, original source, and direct cutting my teeth in direct mail as opposed to online made me a more well-rounded and fundamental marketer. Not the best marketer in the world online, but a more fundamental marketer who's always going to go back to those those original like eternal truths that will never go out of style. So on on, on the original source, you know, I, I quote Perry Marshall, who's a good friend of mine, who's basically wrote a book about evolution. And he's also a marketing genius. This guy is like so eclectic and so brilliant. Anybody should, should pay attention to what Perry Marshall says. On Perry's content. And, yeah, he lo- I love Perry. And I love him as a person too. And Perry... And I got into a, in fact, when I, when I launched over deliver, maybe it was, I launched my first book, the advertising solution. I got on a call with Perry to just talk about 
original source. And Perry has this thing where he says, you know, he says every day you should read something that was printed before the before Gutenberg, you know, before the printing press, just to get a notion of like I, I wrote a I wrote a, a blog post. It was like direct marketing secrets from the 12th century. And it was all about the building of Notre Dame, which was done. I mean, it's a it's a miraculous thing. It's like building the pyramids, right? And so how did they do that without what we have today or even what we had in the in the 20th century, much less the 12th century? And so I marvel at that. I I, you know, do how did they do it? And then how can we do it with all the tools we have? And going back to something you mentioned also about about assessing your assets, you know, you've got so much at your fingertips, not only the wisdom and the knowledge of the past, but stuff you developed in your lifetime. And it, it goes back to Jay Abraham's book, getting everything you can out of all you've got. That's where I got assessing your assets from. I basically, when I, when I used to go in to visit a, a consulting client early in my consulting career, after I left boardroom, I would assess their assets first and foremost. What do you own? What can you get? What can you, what do you want to make? What do you want to buy? That goes back to the buying the books at Barnes and Noble versus making them. So everybody has that at, at their fingertips. People say they don't have a list. Well, do you have followers on Facebook? Do you have people who you talk to on Instagram? Do you have an email list of personal contacts? You got to start somewhere and you own stuff. You own content, you own stuff. And there's stuff you can get your hands on too. That's what assessing yeah. assets is about. And that's what sort of because everybody, no one is ever starting from scratch. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And so you, you got something, and so build on that first before you lament and cry about and whine about. I don't have anything. I don't have a product. Well, maybe your product. Even if you had a product, you wouldn't have had to market it. Why don't you go go into the marketplace and see what the desires and aware what the desires are in the marketplace? Gene Schwartz, Breakthrough Advertising, Chapter One, Mass Desire. He says. It's not the copywriter or the marketer's job to create desire. The desire is in the marketplace already. It's the copywriter and marketer's job to research and find out what's out there and then fill the void. Fill the yeah. void. Not not and that's why, you know, inventors are so they 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 a lot of them squander because they invent the, the best thing that no one wants to buy. I, I used to there's a chapter in my in in the in the chapter about offers. I think I talk about the most successful thing I ever did in my career, which getting into the infomercial business. You know, thirty minute ads on TV to sell books, which led to a two hundred million two hundred million dollar franchise from basically zero. And the whole story is in the book, so I won't go into it. Yeah. But the the thing I want to say about this whole thing about marketers and congruency and finding people to partner with that makes sense and finding assets in the marketplace that makes sense. I used to go to the infomercial conference and there was this, this exhibit hall where it was like lines of these little booths and it, they were all inventors. And you go to the booth because they want to get their invention on TV and all the infomercial producers are there. And so they're basically, it's sort of like a shark tank for inventors and infomercial producers. And they would pitch you on their product. And just like in, in on Shark Tank, like they asked the inventor, like we'd ask the inventors, have you researched the marketplace? Are there things out there that are already like it? What's your price point compared to the competition? All the questions that these inventors, half of them never even asked. They just invented something that they thought would be great. 
then there's one that had this amazing pooper scooper for like like big poop like like dogs that right <laughs> rhinos and, yeah exactly and and like you know is there a need for that in the consumer marketplace or is this an industrial product did you research it that's just one that came to mind but there were so many products that were a product with no audience you're yeah. creating you're creating a solution to a problem that doesn't exist and so you have to reverse the funnel that's why in the in the uh our, i think it's in the rfm chapter on lists I talk about the 40-40-40-20 rule, which I renamed the 41-39-20 rule, which says that, you know, the basic rule was like 40, the the success of any direct marketing campaign depends on 40% the list or the media, 40% on the offer, and 20% on the messaging and the creative. I didn't flip that, but I basically said that to me, it's 41-39-20 with 41% being the list, going back to the desires already in the marketplace. So go to the list, go to the list, find out who's available in the market and then come up with an offer. And then the creative and the messaging is not half as important. It's not 20 to 40. It's actually, I have, I have a blog post that came out after Over Deliver where I said the creative is the least important, 20%, until it's not. Right. What I mean by that is that once you have the the, the list and the offer dialed in, then the creative is the most important because then you want to get the best copy. You want to get the best offer written. You want to get everything dialed in so well. And the reason why it's 20% to begin with is that you can have mediocre copy, a mediocre offer, but if you have the right audience for whatever you're selling, you'll make some sales. You won't make maximum sales. You make some sales. The reverse is not true. The reverse says, if I have the world-class copy and the best offer, but I don't have anybody to buy it. I don't have the right list. You will make zero sales. So then the idea of direct marketing nirvana is having the list right, the offer right, and then get the creative right. And that takes you above everybody else because that becomes yeah. the format, the the and- the uh, the media, everything that you're going to do with the copy become it's just on steroids. Yeah, and I, I think that takes us, Full circle, because and I love your adjustment to 40, 40, 20 being 41, 39, 20, because I know you were the list guy. But I mean, if we go back to the very beginning of this conversation, 41%, the list, that's relationship building, right? Like that's that's understanding who you are serving and and creating everything around that. So I, I love the modification. And there's, <laughs> and, and, there's and so it, much it gold. Includes research. It includes research too. Yeah, yeah. Research. There's just... There's so much that you just shared in that. And I would just encourage anyone to pick up over deliver if you really want to expand on those concepts or maybe we'll have Brian back to expand on some of them. Yeah. Don't buy it on Amazon. Buy it at overdeliverbook.com. So you get all the bonuses. You can still buy it on Amazon from that site. But what Brandon's saying about the bonuses, it's it's basically, and I'll I'll be a little personal here. So I had a I had a, a near fatal stroke in 2019. On the day, the day before Overdeliver was launched. So how's that for, for timing? And so when I woke up in the hospital and I was still alive, and I had all my, I, I had all my limbs moving because I when I when I went down, my whole right side was paralyzed. And so when I got up, my right side was good. My, you know, I lost sight of my left eye, but I I, I had everything that I needed to, to continue to live. My heart was beating. My brain was working. So be it. I, I I dodged a bullet, basically. And I thought about, you know, you can't help thinking about 
that, you know, I came that close to dying. I mean, it was close. And so I, I, I thought about what would be my footprint had I died. Not my legacy per se. Maybe my book is a legacy because that lives on. But what would be my, my footprint? And I realized, and it seems superficial, but it's not, that the, the site for my book, overdeliverbook.com, which encompasses all of my mentors, a lot of them give endorsements for the book, but all of my mentors who were alive at the time of my book, sharing Jay Abraham, sharing Dan Kennedy, sharing Gordon Grossman, sharing Dick Benson, sharing Perry Marshall, they're all involved in the page at overdeliverbook.com. So they were both mentors, coaches, people that basically form my career, who I stand on the shoulders of, is what overdeliverbook.com was all about. And I thought that was so, that was what, because that's what my life's about. It's not inventing stuff. It's not being state-of-the-art and everything. It's being state-of-the-art and innovative, not inventing, and innovative in all the things that I've learned from all the people I stand on the shoulders of. So. I think the overdeliverbook.com site, even if you just go to the site, you don't have to buy the book if you don't want to and get the bonuses. Just look at the site. That's my life. That's my life in a nutshell. And whether you want to care about my life, I'm not saying you need to, but just create something for yourself that you can say will be a living legacy because now I'm alive. And I'm proud of that site because it's a living legacy to who I am and what I've contributed to the industry what I hope to contribute in the future. But yeah. it'll also stand the test of time if I die or when I die. Oh my gosh. No, maybe if we'll find, maybe AI will reach that point where we can just immortalize <laughs> you, Brian. But no, th- thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. And I, I said it once, I said it twice. I'll say it a third time. Go to overdeliverbook.com, please. Like if you want to understand the fundamentals that I would argue make the world work, right? Like marketing, you know, I think Joe Polish has that that video. It's like, is it not not all marketing is evil or something like something along those lines, right? Like oh, marketing like- literally makes the world go around, right? So overdeliverbook.com, if you want to understand the core fundamentals that that make business work, that make marketing work, that make relationship work, that's why it's such a it's such a unique flavor of a book that is able to encompass relationship building at scale and the fo- the core fundamental concepts and and shows how you've built all these relationships over time. So I, I couldn't I and, couldn't and, encourage and, it and, enough. Yeah. Coming from you, it means an awful lot because you know, you're young, you're, you know, I, I'll say I, I don't want to say it n- too negatively, but you're on the way up and I'm on the way down. And and so, you know, the people you meet on the way up and the people you meet on the way down that I met you and I've connected with you is a joy. We're friends for life now. And the fact that it resonated in any way with someone like you means more to me than it resonating with someone my age who is another OG who, you know, wants to listen to other OGs because, you know, it's an echo chamber. And to have somebody, and when, when I get, when I get input from people who are under 30 or at least under 40, who the book resonates with in some way. I, I don't want to, I don't want to discount the people who are also 65 and get something out of it, but it's, it's, it, it kind of means more because it means that while I'm not as relevant as I once was, that I can give people something that they can use in their career and take it 10 steps further. That's what it's all about. It's all about, it's not about being, you don't want to be first. You don't want to be last. 
but you want to be always innovating. You always want to be building and building. And I think, you know, if I can be a voice for concepts that might get forgotten or for people who might get forgotten, like Gordon Grossman and Dick Benson, I'm doing my job. I'm doing a job. You know, it's like the, it's the movie Coco, the movie Coco. <laughs> Yeah, and hopefully you'll share that. No, well, no, fun. Well, I'll just say really quick. You can you can explain about Coco, but my my daughter Kaya was born on November second, which is Dia de los Muertos, and, and so literally we brought we brought her home, and when we, when she was sitting at home, and we we just decided to put on Coco, <laughs> and so totally understand. So, but but beautiful beautiful movie. So love it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I know Coco is just you know it's like it's not about people the, the people die, and then they have a final death. And the final death comes when they're no longer remembered. Yeah. As long as and, and it ties into day, Dia de Muertos, which is a holiday in Mexico, which you already said, Brandon. But it's but it's really about you know embracing the dead, honoring the dead, being being conscious of the people that came before you, and just mentioning Dick Benson and Gordon Grossman in this podcast keeps their name alive to people who may never have heard of them. And yeah. and I've done my job. Yeah, no, 100%. So I, I so I'm, I'm, it'll be in the show notes. Go to overdeliverbook.com. And I, I think if, if you're not familiar with this world of direct response, this will be a great domino into this world. Like if, if you're not familiar with some of those words, and also, by the way, not to throw in another one, but breakthrough advertising, which, which Brian has the rights to and was able to resurrect like, another book that like just game changing. So go check this out. Not to, not to give you too many call to actions, go to overdeliverbook.com. I would highly recommend also specifically how to get from where you are to where you want to be by Jay Abraham. The bonus course that's included in there that I'm sure he once sold for thousands of dollars is literally just sitting in there as a bonus. I've listened to that two times as a result, but, but yeah, so, so good. $1,000 to produce. Yeah, there you go. Two hundred thousand dollars of value just sitting there in in well, not not only that, but so much more. So, oh uh, man, I'm just gonna Brian. I know we could talk for forever. I'm just gonna really quickly have a conversation with our friend listening, and I just want to say, oh my gosh, you could be you could be listening to so many other podcasts, you could be doing so many other things. But if you're still hanging out with Brian and myself right now, I, I say this at the end of every episode and I don't get sick of saying it. I'm so grateful for you. Like the, the fact that you are here investing in yourself, learning about these fundamental principles. And, and there is something in here that can absolutely change lives. That is why I'm so passionate about podcasting and doing this the way I do it is because whether it was just maybe the story at the end of hearing about Brian's legacy on how, you know, wondering what it would be like when he passed away and knowing that overdeliverbook.com was a way of doing that. Or maybe it was the story from the beginning about Mariana Rivera and, and, and competition is coexistence. Like so many concepts, not only can transform your personal life, but your business, like lifetime value. We were just packed inside of this episode. So my, my ask is that if you were listening to this right now and you found value that you just share this with one person, you have no idea who needs to hear that one concept that could be the game changer for them. And maybe it leads them into the world of Brian Kurtz and you can go check out all the, the Titans that he has worked with over the course of his career. So whether you choose to do that or not, I'm so grateful for you listening and so grateful for you being here. And Brian, any, any final things you want to say as we, as we conclude for today? I just want to give you a shout out because you said something, you know, that you, you know, you have this podcast and you love it, but you're, you know, you're, you're paying it. Not that, Entrepreneurs, Dan Sullivan says entrepreneurs don't have to give back because they never took anything, but you need to give and you're such a giving person and it's going to be part of your life. And you've got so many decades and decades to keep that going. 
and and Jay Abraham, quote, I'm quoting Jay Abraham. He t- he's always on my mind when, when I'm teaching, and I, when I when I teach, I learn. So I learned a lot on this podcast too, just by interacting with you. And Jay Abraham says, you know, if you if you've done it, you have an obligation to teach it. And you know, it's sort of like he says you have a moral obligation to teach it. So you know, and and so when I'm when I'm not teaching what I've done or, you know, being on a podcast and you igniting the question of my, my trip to Barnes and Noble, which I <laughs> talk about every day, it, it ignites me so I can ignite your audience and, and that you're igniting it. And then you, you know, the fact that you teach how you do podcasting to another audience that, that, that alone is, is such, is so worthwhile because podcasting just like everything else like bad marketing there's bad podcasting and you do good podcasting and so you need to keep teaching that you need to keep on keep on keeping on and so anything i can do to support you in that i'm here and as i said we're friends for life and i hope you keep on expanding and growing and as your family grows So grateful for you, Brian. You know, it's like, I know this is like one of the first times that we've we've hung out, but I just, from reading you and interacting with you, it's just like so much love, so grateful for you and what you're doing and you're right. So really excited to continue the conversation with you. Thank you for playing full out today and uh, we'll talk to you soon, my friend.